Hi there, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Club. Nice to have your company once again. Beyond the Club, of course, is here to help make Australian sports clubs places we can be proud of. As always, I'm Ben Hook. The brains, the absolute driving force behind this operation is my man, Sam Elliott. He is Flinders University's award-winning researcher, senior lecturer in sport health and physical activity. We're here in Flinders University's wonderful Good Vibe Factory. Sam, g'day. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you, Hooky. Good week, mate. It's been a great week. A busy week, but uh, a good week. Got a bit of uh, new research that we're going to talk about today. You guys uniquely come up with dud titles that I find it very difficult to read beyond the headline, but that's why we're here, to try and sort of articulate a bit of that message in a manner that simple people like me can understand. The promotion of sporting opportunities for girls and young females and the implications for traditional female sports a qualitative descriptive study. So what you're really saying there is girls who did one sport and they're off to footy. Lots more opportunities for girls to play different sports. What does it mean for the traditional options? I'm looking forward to getting into it. There are so many issues around it. We've seen netball, which is probably the most obvious candidate here, rack up a huge debt in their pursuit of trying to find an elite pathway for girls and I guess fight off the threat of Australian rules football. Hey, before we do it, you want to get into a club of the day? What have you got for us? I'll tell you, I've got a club of the day. It's actually not a club. It's a sporting organisation that I think is probably appropriate for the message that we're talking about because I want to refer to a traditional girls and women's sport. I mean, they do have boys and men play and they're trying to increase that footprint. But I've got to give a big salute, if you like, to softball in South Australia and specifically the organisation of Softball SA. I'll just share with you a little bit about Softball SA and what they've managed to put together this year. Uh, This was a sport from an elite perspective that had one Australian in the Olympic team last year. That was Belinda White. I mean, she is a jet. She's a gun. She's been the eight-time most outstanding player for South Australia. But the national carnival that's been put back and put back and put back was finally hosted in Adelaide in May this year. So best part of a couple of months ago now. South Australia hadn't won that in 66 years. Wow, Uh, 66 years. And this bunch of girls, remembering that New South Wales is an absolute powerhouse. They've got, you know, an absolute stranglehold on the big name softball players. ACT is also a very strong outlet for softball. Anyway, at home, our girls won the national title, the Gillies Shield, in an absolute thriller, extra innings, by one run type of result. They do a really good job of shooting video, actually covering the matches via live streams and so forth. So now, as I said to you at the top, that Belinda White was our only Australian in the Australian team. As a result of that performance and all of those girls, we now have seven young women in Australian squads from softball. Wow. So I had the opportunity to be part of their best and fairest awards function, if you like. I mean, they're just so committed, so dedicated. They're wonderful. They're so polite. They're really appreciative for the opportunities they get. There's no money in softball. We know that. But these girls are just so dedicated and had the best time together and pulled off an incredible result. So I just wanted to recognise Softball SA. One of those sports that we might be talking about uh, with regard to the threat of athletes being, I guess, encouraged, poached by Australian Rules Footy Clubs, which is going to be a good discussion. I can't wait to get into it. It's not just for football or netball, as the conversation might allude to. It's for any club that feels like they're losing players to another sport. This is an episode you want to listen to. Right, all right. Well, let's get into it straight after we take this message from the Sammy D Foundation. 
Hey, it's Shannon here from the Sammy D Foundation. Sporting clubs are a great place for people to connect, to enjoy themselves and to celebrate the game. But at times, things can get out of hand. That's where our PartyWise program comes in. Our PartyWise program gives you the knowledge and strategies around alcohol and other drug use. We educate and empower your club and its members to understand the harm and impact of alcohol and other drugs, the different type of drugs and their effects, and strategies to keep you and your mates safe. To learn more about the PartyWise program, call us on 8374-1678 or find us at sammydfoundation.org.au. Yeah, you're listening to Beyond the Club with Ben Hook and Sam Elliott. We're going to start to talk about the increased opportunities for girls and women in sports that they haven't traditionally played and what that can mean for the sports that they traditionally have played. Uh, Sam, the obvious example is, is netball. And the fact that we've seen not a steady stream, but a bit of a trickle maybe of uh, young women who've decided to put their netball careers on hold to dip the toe in the water of Australian rules football. And we've seen it's it's been very popular on TV. It's exploded at the community level. I mean, the Adelaide Footy League that runs women's football here in and around Adelaide has just grown exponentially in the last uh, five or six years. We've seen at, at Sandful level, every club now has uh, its own women's team and even a women's development team as well. So just tell us what has happened and what that has meant for clubs and sports, sports, if you like, that, um, that women have traditionally played. Yeah, absolutely. So as a timestamp, if you just go back to 2016, how many young girls were playing Australian football? And if you then flick that to 2022, obviously the advent of the AFLW competition in 2017 has precipitated a range of interests and opportunities. And one of the things that we've seen is this exponential growth. The concern is that, well, where are these girls coming from? That's, mm. that's the concern, not of my own, but it's the concern of many people and many organisations that have had girls involved in, say, more historically traditional female sports. And so netball is a good example, but off the top, you mentioned softball. There's a number of sports that have been typically dominated by female participation. Since football and cricket and soccer have become much more established in the, I guess, in the, in, in the mainstream uh, offerings to young girls for sport, what has this meant? What has this meant for those such as netball, such as softball? So this particular research, which we've just published, has actually looked at that phenomenon. What mm. is going on? Are we seeing a significant shift in players from one to the other, from one sport to another? Yep. Are we just shuffling the deck chairs? Yep. It's sort of, it all just sort of come around in, in time? Or is there something else going on? And that's what this study sought to find. So my first question, have participation rates dropped in traditionally women's sports? Uh, so there's actually been a rise in most codes and this is irrespective of COVID. So this is just something to be aware of. Mm. Um, COVID, of course, there's a concern that there's an overall decline in participation and you can see that. But from what those, from those who are still involved in sport, female participation has been relatively stable. So it hasn't necessarily increased, but unlike many boys who have come in and come out because of the pandemic, girls are actually doing okay. Mm. So, the challenge, therefore, is, okay, well, of those who are playing sport, how many have, you know, I guess against the grain of this research, how many girls have left, let's say, netball in this conversation for another sport? Yeah. Okay, and that's really what we sought to look at here. So this particular study uh, was based on a bigger project which involved surveys across South Australia with parents, 
with girls, with coaches, with administrators, as well as follow-up focus groups and interviews. So before our listeners say, well, hang on, Sam's not a netballer. Sam doesn't know this context. You're right, I'm not a netballer, and I've never played the game in a competitive sense. But what I love about research is that you get to listen to the stories of those that do know, and you get to survey those that do know this space. And that's what this research is based on. So with players, parents, coaches, administrators, we've learned something about this phenomenon. So one of the things that we've identified is this notion of being a cross-coder, being a, a cross-coder or being a, a dual-code athlete. So what you're saying is that you, you don't have to give up netball to take up football. That is exactly what we're saying. Now, there's going to be instances, and the listeners will be saying, yeah, but I know someone that's done that. Absolutely. We're not denying that there are young girls that may literally say, you know, what? I'm done with sport X, Y, and Z. I'm off to play footy. So we, we acknowledge that. Mm. But I think it's a knee-jerk reaction to assume that every girl that is now going to sample football is going to be exhibiting that type of preference. Our research actually shows, and again, based on the girls, the players, the parents, our research shows that there are some challenges with cross-code athletes in terms of their time, their availability, their training loads. But it's actually a real type of, if you like, young profile that we need to try and accommodate. So, Hookie, if you're leaving netball for, let's say, Australian rules football as, yeah. as a young person, there's going to be some challenges there because suddenly there are different trainings, there are different opportunities, there are different rules, there are different, I guess, implications for the family routine, yes. managing your time and, and Even work finances, and Sam. Absolutely. So there's all of these, these changes. Uh, and if you want to maintain, say, netball and football participation across a calendar year, there are some challenges as much as financial, as much as logistical, as much as um, social and emotional support that matter. But the challenge here for netball in this research is that you need to try and find a way to accommodate the cross-coder. So just because someone's leaving doesn't mean you shut the door on them. Yeah. It doesn't mean you want to leave the impression that they, you know, don't leave our sport, don't be desperate to hold on to them, encourage sampling. And sampling's a good thing. Mm. And it's something that I think we, we take for granted in, in, in the research. It's certainly something that's well-established. You want to sample or diversify many sports from a young age. And so these 12 to 25-year-old girls, if they want to sample different sports, it's a good thing. So you're talking about um, creating methods that allow them to retain a netballer while they're also a footballer. I mean, if they're playing netball on Saturday afternoon and football on Saturday afternoon, should netball, and we're not talking specifically about netball here, but should sports like that try and maybe recreate their competitive time slot Monday night? Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, is that a preferable way of maybe allowing someone to keep one foot in both camps? I think what you're sort of highlighting here is are clubs and organisations, are sporting codes willing to innovate? Mm. And I think that's the first real key challenge. If you, if you are stagnant, if you are complacent as a sporting organisation, I think especially it's got really nothing to do with the pandemic, but what COVID has, has really shone a light on in every industry is how agile and how responsive can you be? And I think for sporting clubs and for sporting organisations, the time is now to be innovative. The time is now to try and problem solve your way through these challenges. That doesn't necessarily mean netball has to change to accommodate other sports. Mm, but what mm. I'm saying and what this research yeah, do you is want to concede for, the ground? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's not it's not a matter of well, we'll just take a back seat. It's not that at all. It's saying hey, in addition to your traditional mainstream offering that you might want to preserve, what are the other avenues? What are the other options that you can put on the table that are feasible, that are sustainable, that young people want? 
And if we don't ask those questions, then we risk being stagnant, complacent, and seeing maybe a gradual you know, leakage of players that we really don't do anything about. Mm. There's a couple of things that I just wanted to pick you up on and what you referred to. You said that... Uh, making uh, your sport open for people to re-engage with it and come back was really important. I mean, I think there is, in particular at the teenage level and maybe even a little bit younger than that, you get, and we're talking about young girls here, who maybe become particularly engrossed in a particular topic and then they move on with it. But having a facility where they can come back to it is probably not a bad thing. Here's an example. My daughter's mad on K-pop. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, here? Korean pop. Yes, yeah. BTS. And she does all the dances. And I'm really quite hopeful that she grows out of that. But I guess I've probably got to be in a situation where I can cater for the fact that she may want to come back to it when she's 16 or 17. Is that a reasonable sort of approach that I need to take? Absolutely. And the first lesson here if you are a sport like Netball, and you perceive that you're losing some members or some players to a rival code, you want to try and find a way to, in at a minimum, at a policy level, at a relational level, to keep the door open. And I'm just going to read a quote here. This is, for me, is a really powerful quote, um, or a point from this particular paper. Young females were merely jumping between sports and seasons as opposed to leaving one for the other. There's a really big difference there. Just because they are sampling football doesn't mean it's all football. Yeah. Okay. In some instances, it may be. Sure. But in many instances, and what this research has shown, again, but that one example isn't the rule. This, that's what I'm saying. Okay. This one example is not the rule. We need to realise that sampling different sports doesn't mean the end of netball. It doesn't mean that they won't play again. What it does mean is that you might want to think about how you can re-energise the experience and maximise the, the quality of engagement because inevitably we are drawn to things that we enjoy the most. So mm. it's certainly a reminder for any sport to try and reflect on and to maximise the enjoyment proposition that your sport offers. Here's something that I find interesting about the contrast between the two sports is that netball, you've got seven on the court. You might have, I don't know, two reserves. You might make changes from time to time. Footy, you could have a squad of 25 to 30. You've got triple the friends. Is that a challenge? It is a challenge. It's another thing that we found in this research, another theme. Team size does matter. And so it's like, well, why are, they, why are they leaving for football? Why are young girls wanting to go and try these other sports? It's not just football, as I said, cricket, soccer. Mm. These sports inevitably, as a squad, in terms of who plays on the weekend, comparative to who plays on the court in netball on the weekend, they're bigger squads. So mm. team size does matter. And what it generates, what our research suggests, is that it generates a higher level of energy. There's an enthusiasm, there's an energy, there's a culture that is very different to, say, what can be generated at the netball where you might be fixtured very tightly because there's so many grades and so many levels of, of competition. There's there's usually a coach and not many other support staff. But in football, there's trainers, there's coaches, there's assistant coaches, there's someone timekeeping. There's, there's all these people that are integral to putting on the show of football. So the community is a lot bigger. There's a lot more atmosphere. A lot more people know your name. And as a result of that, that becomes a really strong source of attraction or, or interest. Like, mm. I want to see what this is about. And when I'm in there, these are things that we quite you know find quite enjoyable. So team size does matter. So it's a couple of things I think about there. If you're a netball club and you've got, as you said, you know, the structure of eight junior teams and you know there's nine in that junior team one and junior team two has nine and so on and so forth and my limited understanding of netball is they do one selection at the start of the year and you're in with that group for the rest of the year there's no capacity for you to demonstrate in a junior three team that you are so good you should actually be up in the junior twos you stay in the junior threes for the rest of the year point number one is is that 
a good system. Point number two, would netball be best served maybe, even though, yeah, we understand it's a seven-a-side game, but maybe training should be grouped with teams one, two, and three all grouped together for at least a period of training, groups four, five, and six. So you've still got that feeling of you're part of the same talent group, if you like, but you're working with a lot more people. Yeah, I think there's some interesting ideas there. The, the I bit- thought of them on the spot, by the way. No, well, you could give them a bit more love. You could yeah. say, "Yeah, brilliant, Hooky. Where did you come up with that?" I will say that they are good ideas. <laughs> I feel like the listeners might hear them and think, "Oh, yeah, we could do that." But and there's always there's always exceptions. What I would say is that if you are a club uh, or a netball organization and you've got you know eight players in a team in any given age group or, or, or division, it could be possible for you to start to think about, okay, well, we can't just have suddenly a squad of 25 in this particular age group and in this particular team that plays at 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning. Mm -hmm. Your your squad is what it is. But you might want to think about, okay, what is it about football that with bigger numbers that creates an energy? How does that energy get created? Mm. How does that excitement get created? And maybe one of the things Nepical reflect on is what are the things that are ritualistic, that are enjoyable, that are iconically Australian football? And so, for example, when you win a game in football, what happens after the game? Well, you sing the song. You sing the song. Do you sing a song in Nepal? I don't think you do. You oh, no, I, that's not true. I saw a reel where the Queensland Firebirds, whose coach got the flip, yep. South Australian girl, Megan Anderson. Um, but yeah, I think netball have tried to encourage a few of those, but it's not prevalent, is it? It's not what I would see in every single netball club. I'm undertaking another study right now, coincidentally, and, and we've spent like, a lot of hours in a range of different sporting codes, nearly 100 hours of observations. Netball is one of them. So there's some perspective on this. Not every single club will sing a song after their win or loss or draw. There may be a cheer, a, yeah. a, a respectful cheer for the opposition and a respectful cheer for the, umpire. uh, the umpires. But there's nothing iconically and culturally ritualistic about them about, that brings them together. Yeah. And so singing the song after a game in football is quite a historical part of, of Australian rules. Girls love that. They love feeling a sense of belonging. It's a prolonged sense of connection because the song isn't over in, in 15 seconds. It takes probably a minute to sort of yell your way through. It doesn't matter if you've got a bad voice. It doesn't matter if you're the tallest or the shortest player. Everyone has, I guess, a place in that moment. That's just one example where if I'm netball, I'm sitting thinking, okay, we might not sing songs after the games, but what's our thing that we can do that just adds a bit of excitement? It could be before the game, during the game, during the week. What's our thing? And that's the first maybe consideration for netball clubs. Love it. I really like that idea. What about um, just something that I'm a, is occurring in my mind? We've seen Netball, uh, and it's to, on the day that we're recording, has released its financials for 2021. They've lost $4 million. They have clearly gone down the road of trying to compete with other elite sports like Australian Rules and NRL in the capacity to pay its athletes well. Uh, they don't have anything like the television deals that the, that the footy codes do. And we've seen that as a result, and in particular some COVID-related stuff with having to set up hubs and extra travel and all of those sorts of things, that the finances are horrendous. They can't compete pound for pound on paying their elite athletes the same rate. I think that's probably where they're going to have to be for a while. How can you get around that with a pathway? Yeah, so this is another finding from this research. It's it's probably the most important one, I think, because uh, and, and so the title of this finding is Pathway Aspirations. So there's very limited opportunities to play at the absolute elite level of netball simply by product of the 
amount of players that are in a national competition relative to most other codes and in at the extreme case, in this case, Australian Football League W. Okay, so AFLW. So the pathway aspirations are different, but that doesn't mean that you can't engineer or you can't enhance a pathway, aspiration and opportunity for young people. Now, there are some political and some organisational barriers in the way. Some of the participants tell us in this research that it's quite frustrating to work your way up a division or up a, a grade and then suddenly the, the big paid player comes in and there's a domino effect where everyone drops down one as a result. So to be promoting young players that show potential or that, that really have a pathway aspiration, sometimes it can be dampened by these things. And that's not dissimilar to other sports, but it, sen- it tends to be felt more in these smaller groups because the, the ramifications of being the best goal shooter and then suddenly they've just paid a goal shooter at the highest level, there's a domino effect down and you might be affected, right? So there's definitely challenges there. But what I would suggest for clubs is to think about the ways in which you can firstly uh, shine a light on the fact that there is a pathway. That's number one, because a lot of young girls don't perceive there to be a viable career pathway in netball. But when they think of football, it's like, oh, you know, the door's actually open. I don't know if I'll make it, but Mm. the door is open. And I'm not sure they even consider that the door may be shut or even locked in netball. I'm not, I'm not convinced, based on the, the interview data, that girls see netball as a potential career opportunity unless you are that one in 1,000 that are really, really, really good. Are girls getting into footy on the basis that they think there is a living here? The research that we've conducted would show that if you are a talented, athletic, young um, person, if you're a young female athlete, that would be that. I think that stands up in in the scientific research that we've done. I think that stands up for every young girl. No, because there are some that are just following their friends and it looks fun. There are others that are curious and want to be part of something bigger. There are those that are championing change. They want to be a pioneer for not just their generation, but for a future generation. Not just their, you know, if they had kids, you know, when they're older, but for a younger generation of girls that will come after them. They want to show that this is not a boy sport. This is just a sport. One other thing I want to ask you about, I mean, there are some advantages to netball over football. It's a winter sport. Netball, a lot of it's played indoors. It's all over in an hour. I don't mind a few of those sorts of concepts. Footy, you can be out in a freezing cold park, wind and rain, and I mean, I don't find that pleasant. I imagine there are some women who don't find that particularly pleasant either. Is there a capacity for, we're talking about netball here, is there a capacity for netball to sell some of its assets? <laughs> Again, potentially, you, you mentioned those things. I mean, there's some great advantages of playing netball, absolutely. And they shouldn't be forgotten in this conversation. Netball has a relatively stable participation base. But for those that are leaving, the lesson here is not have a knee-jerk reaction. Mm. Don't, don't, don't worry that there are a few girls that want to go and try a different sport, football, cricket, soccer, whatever it might be. Um, most of them will sample and want to sustain their involvement in netball simultaneously. There'll be a few that will go to football and the pendulum will swing and they'll come back because, oh, it was a bit rough. I might just, I'm happy to play netball. And then there are those that are going to try football and fall in love with it. So this is where you've got to really sort of differentiate um, the, the kind of individuals who are leaving sport for another and what the real consequences of their participation are. The thing I would mention about these benefits that you've mentioned that, you know, it's indoor and it's um, nice courts and those kind of things, uh, absolutely. But the flip side of that is, well, what are the things that aren't enjoyable at, at netball? And in this research, one of the things that came through is that it is quite rigid. It's quite, you know, it's very structured. It's very, it's like, take your poison and, and run with it. I mean, on the one hand, being super organized might 
be perceived by someone else that's this is really rigid. Mm. You know, it's too serious. You know, we've got to be here. We've got to wear the right socks. We've got like it's very um, regimented in in that manner for mm. some people, right? So you've got to take the good with the bad in terms of what your offering is. But what I'm saying is, in addition to that, are there some other hybrid? offering some hybrid versions of your sport that might complement your membership and, and potentially grow new membership as well. I mean, you mentioned off the top that how many young men are playing netball. It's a fast-paced game. It, it is, is cracking. It's really fast from attack to defense. It's If you want to learn transition in any sport, in soccer, football, if you want to learn transition, I'd be saying play netball. You'll learn how to transition from attack to defense quicker by playing netball. So it's got great advantages to it. What are the other hybrid offerings that are available? And I think that's where, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, you could be really interested in in a sport that offers that kind of thing. Uh, Sam and I, we've been talking about uh, young females and the implications for traditional female sports and the way that young females are moving to the modern opportunities, in particular the football codes of uh, Australian rules and rugby league. Sam is going to come up with the fast break, the fast four practical issues that relate to this and what I guess the traditional women's sports clubs should be thinking about aiming at, I guess, being confident in their own skin about as they see some of these athletes transitioning and uh, what are the best ways to, I guess, keep them around the place and bring them back. We'll do that after this message from the Alcohol and Drug Foundation. Hey, this is Christian from the Good Sports Program. As a parent or coach, you are a role model for the young people in your life and what you do around the club is just as important as what you say. You might not be a sports star, but kids look up to those closest to them and follow what they do. When kids see their role models drinking at the club, they understand that this is part of the club culture and connected to sport. And sadly, they tend to want to follow suit, putting them at risk of alcohol harm. The Good Sports Program offers some fantastic practical resources on role modelling and are free to access at goodsports.com.au. Well, it's fast forward time on Beyond the Club. We've been talking about all of the challenges for traditional women's sports and how we've seen, I guess, a shift in girls and women moving from traditional women's sports into what we've regarded as traditional men's sports. Uh, Sam has four issues, four fast break points, if you like, practical little points that clubs of traditional women's sports, how they can combat this if you like, work with it, don't have to combat it, don't have to fight it, you can actually work with it and some of the things that you can do to enhance your capacity to retain your own membership, even if you lose a few along the way, you might get a few back. Let's talk about point number one, go on. Point number one, fun. Yes. And Don't we spend a bit of time discussing that? It is the most important thing when it comes to sport and it's becoming clearer every day, uh, in, in certainly in the academic world, that it's just the key ingredient. It's the key ingredient for so many things, motivation, retention. Um, But what I want to talk about here is before you start worrying about young members, boys, girls, whoever, leaving your sport for a rival code, okay, before you worry about that, look in your own backyard and consider, are we really maximizing the fun proposition? So one maybe starting point is to keep joining us on Beyond the Club and listen Listen to to our our fun podcasts, our bonus episodes. Yep. So we're working through those those determinants. But that is a really classically easy way to go, oh, this is something I could, if you're a coach or you're a manager or a parent, it's a really easy way just to incorporate some sort of entertaining aspect to what can be a pretty mundane routine training Absolutely. regime. Yeah, and, and people are less likely to leave things that they truly and deeply and intrinsically enjoy. So 
maximize your fund proposition. And even if they go to another code, they are likely to have such a good impression of their, let's say their early sporting experiences that the door that you're trying to leave open is open just a little bit more. They're more likely to come back. They're more likely to sustain their involvement. Sam, let's get on to point number two. I follow international golf. In the men's system at the moment, there's been a lot of players who've shifted from the American PGA Tour to a Saudi Arabian-backed Live Golf Tour. And the PGA Tour has banned the Live Golfers. If someone leaves your sport, should you ban them? Definitely not. Uh, under, under most circumstances, I can imagine there might be the odd incident where you, you might need to ban them. But typically speaking, if, if young um, girls and females are leaving, uh, they're leaving your sport for a rival sporting code, okay, or another sporting code, I should say, keep the door open. Okay, so that's the next point. Keep the door open. And our listeners might say, well, how? What does that look like? So my first point would be, okay, when Sam um, or whoever it might be leaves a sport, what is my follow-up method? Do I just let them go and you know, shut the door on them and, oh, well, let's focus on what's coming through? Or am I actively putting the same time and attention into those that have tried other sports? They may not have quit your sport. They may still be playing netball, but they're going to play football in this example. How do I just keep in touch with them as much as keeping in touch and trying to build the next generation that are coming through from the grassroots? So keep the door open. What is your follow-up methods? And maintain the lines of communication, I would have thought. Yes, absolutely critical. Okay, point number three, avoid stagnation. What do you mean by that? Yeah, let's not be complacent. What this research really implores are for netball softball, any any club, any club that is concerned with losing young girls to another sport um, might want to think about how can we innovate? What's the next innovation? What's the next um, opportunity for us to maximise our offerings to more than just girls? I mean, that's what football's really done, right? It's gone from being a traditionally masculinized sporting domain and it's fundamentally in our sport for all and the more you see inclusion leagues and, and leagues for women, you're starting to see, well, this really and truly is a game for pretty much everyone. So in that instance, what I'm doing, if I'm going to the netball club tonight to talk at the strategic planning meeting to develop our next three-year plan, one of those dot points, and there's always 25 dot points, one of the things we'd want to focus on is, well, what is our innovative strategy, you know, point number one? Okay, so it could be like, Right, in three years, we're going to have three boys teams. Mm. Just as one example. We're going to to have one boys team this year, we're going to have two next year, and three the year after. Someone who does the work that you do, are you stunned that no one's ever thought about... You you talk about the top netball teams, and even the top softball clubs, they're the traditional women's sports. None of them have come up with the concept of boys and men's teams, which are prevalent all throughout traditional boys' sports. I'm not sure if they have or haven't. I mean, we're not in the inner sanctum there, but... Based on purely what you see, it's something that is yet to be truly realised. And mm. I think there's a real opportunity here. Netball doesn't need to strike back and take you know take away a market share of the, the football fraternity. That's not the case at all. What I'm simply saying is that at any level, next time you have a strategic board meeting and next time you're going to put your plans into action, I'm hoping that one of those things is an innovative approach. If you are complacent, the lesson here is if you are complacent, mm. then you're going to have less opportunities to sort of maximise your membership and to, to invite new people into your sport. So this is really about diversifying your offerings, diversifying the amount of people and the different types of people that can come and be involved in your sport. Last point, mate. Uh, you talk about coexisting with other sports. How does how do you, how can you coexist? I mean, you are battling for time slot. 
Yeah, so some of my language in this episode may even come across as adversarial. But if I'm looking at netball and football as the example, so if Shana's a netballer and going to go and play football for the first time, but has every intention of coming back to netball the following summer season, awesome. The first thing I'm going to ask and ought to consider is how can my sport coexist, collaborate, work with football? to manage training loads, expectations. Really what this is about is putting Shana first, the individual first, mm. rather than the needs of the sporting club first. And that's a really big shift in, in idea and, and mentality. Shana's our producer, of course. She'd be very handy in the midfield for the Bedford Park Bullfrogs, I reckon. She would, and equally handy in the midfield or the centre uh, of, <laughs> of the netball court as well, I imagine. So my point is that it doesn't have to be one or the other. You can coexist, and sometimes you can make that easy by sharing resources, knowing what the workload looks like when... Shana's going to be training here, there, and whatever it might be, and working together rather than against each other. Uh, Sam, it's a really good episode. Great research. I mean, it is absolutely topical. number of people have been involved. Murray Drummond, Ivanka Pritchard, Lucy Lewis, Claire Drummond, Catherine Litchfield, Amelia Misko. Emily Musco. All right. Yeah, good on it. Good on it, Emily. Just threw a couple of extra vowels in there to confuse me. Kaylee O'Donnell. And the last one, of course, is Hayley Truskowitz. Good old Hayley Truskowitz. Great episode. Well done. Thank you, Hookie. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that does wrap up another episode of Beyond the Club. You can access all of the resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes or by heading to our webpage, that's flinders.edu.au forward slash shape. I'm Sam Elliott on Twitter. I'm Ben Hook, one on Twitter. And of course, Beyond the Club is on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks to all of the crew in the Flinders Good Vibe Factory. Big thank you to our producer, Shana Knowles, who got a pretty good mention today for her work in the midfield for the Bedford Park Bullfrogs. Our music is by Ben Watson. Our artwork by Alicia Menzel. All talented youngsters, the three of them. Thanks for your company. We'll see you next time on Beyond the Club.